Opening days are always historic, but they are not always glorious. I've watched some uh, documentaries on uh, Disney's new streaming service that have talked about the, uh, the first day at Disneyland. Now, some of you may have had the opportunity to watch that on television. If you were around on July 17th, 1955, they televised nationally the opening day of Disneyland. The first day of this theme park that would go on to become this kingdom. And it wasn't as great of a day as the television may have depicted. Because there were numerous problems going on behind the scenes that the television audience wouldn't have noticed. For instance, it was supposed to be an invite-only event. 15,000 invitations were sent out. But those tickets that were sent out were very easy to mimic. Very easy to create counterfeit versions of. And so what was supposed to be a day for 15,000 select individuals turned into a day when 28 to 30,000 people showed up because they could easily get a, a counterfeit ticket or even climb the fence into the park. So overcrowding was one issue. On top of that, they had a plumbing issue. See, in the weeks leading up to the opening of the park, there was a plumber's strike. And it came down to Walt Disney having to make a decision, do you want operational restrooms or do you want operational water fountains? He chose the restrooms. But that meant that when people got thirsty, when people got hot, they would have to buy their beverages. There were no free options available. And with 30,000 people and only expecting 15,000 people in that park, they ran out of drinks. On top of that, their time constraints of construction, because they built that park in one year. And, and think about this, one of the more recent additions, Star Wars Galaxy Edge took them three years, and that's just a part of a park. They built an entire park in one year. They ran into such time constraints that they poured the asphalt for Main Street the night before they opened the doors. The temperatures were above 100 degrees that day in Southern California. And so women in high heels were sinking into the asphalt as they walked into Disney World. Now, many of you have traveled to one of the Disney theme parks, and you know that all of that is far removed from what happens today. It is a well-orchestrated, well-designed experience for the family. It was not a good first day, though. And as we continue our study of the book of Acts, we come to chapter 2, and we have a totally different experience for the first day of a kingdom. See, in Acts chapter 2, we're told about the church's opening day, and where the happiest place on earth fell to have a great opening day, the kingdom of God succeeded. And this morning, what I want us to do is consider what we can learn from the church's beginning, from the first day of the kingdom of God in the church. And to do this, we're going to split it up into two, uh, two sections of our sermon. We're going to, in the first half, 
We're going to, to look at the events of the day. We're going to examine what we know about the beginning of the church. In the second half of the lesson, and I know you're already terrified that I'm saying there's two halves to this thing, and you're like, how long is he going to go? Are they both 30 minutes long? Are we, are we going to be here for a couple of hours? No, don't worry. The second half of the sermon, I want us to consider what we can, how we can imitate those first Christians. So let's get started with this. What do we know about the church's first day? What, what do we know about the beginning of the church? Well, we know that the church's first day was symbolic. If you look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, the first thing you'll notice is that the events that unfold here in Acts chapter 2 happen on Pentecost. Now, we're not that familiar with what Pentecost was, but it was a major Jewish feast day. It means, the word Pentecost means 50th, essentially, because it marked a religious holy day in Judaism that took place 50 days after Passover. So just contextualize that for a moment. The events that are unfolding here are less than two months removed from the, the crucifixion of Jesus. But Pentecost was a major Jewish holy day. In the Old Testament, it's not called Pentecost, though, because that is a Greek term for this day. In the Old Testament, in passages like Exodus chapter 34 and verse 22, as well as Exodus chapter 23 and verse 16, you'll see it referred to as the Feast of Weeks. Or you may see it referred to as the Feast of Harvest. Either way, it is this religious day that takes place 50 days after Passover, and it celebrates the first fruits of the wheat harvest. And you'll notice here in Acts chapter 2, if you particularly look at verse 5, that these events were, the events that take place here on the day of Pentecost, were witnessed by Jews from every nation under heaven. And actually, if you skip down to verse 9 of Acts chapter 2, it identifies by name at least 15 different regions or nations from which these Jews travel. There was this this abundance of people in Jerusalem at this feast because Pentecost is one of the three Jewish pilgrimage feasts. It was one of the three feasts every year that the Jewish people were expected to make a trip to Jerusalem. And so on this day, this, this day of Pentecost, we have a ton of people in Jerusalem. And the events that are unfolding are set in the context of a Jewish feast called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest. So the church's first day was historic because it coincided with this Jewish feast. Just like Jesus' final day coincided with another Jewish feast called Passover. And we don't need to miss the significance of the parallels between Pentecost and the inauguration of the church. Pentecost, which I mentioned is alternatively known as the Feast of Harvest, it was an annual celebration of the first fruits of the harvest with which God had blessed His people. And on that particular Pentecost, recorded in Acts chapter 2, the first fruits of God's kingdom were harvested after Peter preached the first gospel sermon. And we're told down in chapter 2 verse 41 that about 3,000 souls were added to the church that day. So the church's first day was symbolic. 
because of its relation to Pentecost. But it was also unique. The church's first day was unique because it involved something that we now refer to as Holy Spirit baptism. John the Baptist said in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11 that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Here in Acts chapter 2 verses 3 through 4 we read that tongues as of fire rested on each of the apostles and as a result they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. In other words, the, the, the Holy Spirit descended on the apostles and empowered them to do signs and wonders, as chapter 2 and verse 43 says. And those signs and wonders were there to confirm the message of salvation, which they were called to present. Now this was a unique experience. It happened only one other time in history. Skip ahead to Acts chapter 10 and you'll read about the other time it happened. Acts chapter 10 verses 44 through 48, we find out that Peter was sharing the message of salvation with Cornelius and his whole household. Now Cornelius was not a Jew, Cornelius was a Gentile. And God wanted Peter to understand that his kingdom was not going to be limited to a Jewish audience. That his church was not going to be closed to people outside of the Jewish faith or the Jewish genealogy, for that matter. And so this is what God did, reading in verse 44 of Acts chapter um, 10. While Peter was, was preaching, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Verse 46 of Acts 10. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So what you have happened in Acts chapter 8, excuse me, Acts chapter 10 is a repeat essentially of what happened in Acts chapter 2, this unique outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The Gentile converts in Acts chapter 10 are receiving the Holy Spirit baptism that the first Jewish converts received. And Peter immediately understood that, that this is unique, that this is special, that this is a repeat performance of what happened to him in Acts chapter 2, and it happened so that the so that he would receive confirmation from God that Gentiles could receive salvation too. See, Acts chapter 2, this opening day of the church, is unique because something special happened that happened only one other time in all of history. Something that doesn't happen anymore. And it's this presence of the Holy Spirit that's empowering these individuals to do signs and wonders. And that leads us to the third thing we know about this day. Not only was it symbolic, not only was it unique, but it was also foretold. Those events, the, the pouring out of the Spirit in this instance, was prophesied. It was communicated in advance. And that's important. Because if you're one of the apostles, if you're one of those present that day, are you going to understand what's happening unless God told you what it was beforehand? 
You see, you can go back to a passage we've already mentioned, Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, where John the Baptist talks about what Jesus is going to do. Again, he says, The one who is coming after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The context of John's statement does not reveal specifically who will be baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire. But after Jesus' resurrection, he instructed his apostles to remain in Jerusalem. If you look at Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, you find out it's so that they can wait for the promise of the Father. He then identified that promise. He said, you heard from me, in Acts chapter 1, verse 4 through 5, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. In other words, Jesus referred back to John's statement in order to prepare the apostles for the coming of the Spirit who would clothe them with power on high, to use the language of Luke chapter 24 and verse 49. So John foretold the events that would happen in Acts chapter 2. Jesus foretold the events that would happen in Acts chapter 2. And if you read Peter's sermon, which follows, he appeals to the prophet Joel as one who foretold the events that would happen in Acts chapter 2. So the church's first day was foretold because it fulfilled prophecies spoken by Old Testament prophets, by John the Baptist, by Jesus himself. And the foretelling of these events, as I said, was important because it would have been the only way the apostles would understand that the church was beginning. See, when we look at this day, it's an important day. It's connected with the Jewish Feast of Pentecost, and that, that can remind us of just how special the day was in that the first fruits of the harvest are being produced as Peter preaches the first gospel sermon. It is an important day because it is unique and something is happening that doesn't happen all the time. And it's an important day. It's an important day because it was foretold. It was fulfilling prophecy. Now that's all well and good to know that information. And I think it's important to communicate some of those things from time to time in the pulpit so you know what Scripture's talking about. But we also need to be able to look at a story like this and apply it. Make it fit into the context of our lives. And so what I want to do with the remaining time that we have is I want us to pose the question, how can we imitate the first Christians? And I think there's three important things to take away from the events of Acts chapter 2 as far as our imitation is concerned. First, we can imitate the first Christians by living expectantly. Do you remember what this group of approximately 120 followers of Jesus was doing in Jerusalem? They were waiting because Jesus had ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, back in Acts chapter 1 and verse 4. You see, these original Christians, they lived 
in this moment with the expectation, the anticipation that God was going to do something big. Of course their expectation was based on a a specific prophetic announcement by Jesus, but just because we don't receive such prophetic announcements today doesn't mean that we shouldn't live at the same level of anticipation, does it? See, Jesus has promised to do great things in his church and in the lives of his people. Shouldn't we live with the expectation that Jesus will bring those things into fruition? Just think about a couple of the promises Jesus made. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, Jesus invited all who labor and are heavy laden to come to him. And he promised that all who do so will find rest for their souls. In other words, Jesus promised a peace and recovery that supersedes the physical. Now that doesn't mean that once you come to Jesus, you'll never experience, you'll never experience heavy ladenness or labor again. But it does mean that you have someone who will help you carry it when you do. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, a passage that probably is familiar to you, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In other words, Jesus promised to protect his kingdom. Now that doesn't mean that every individual outpost of that kingdom won't face difficulty, but it does mean that we don't have to worry about whether or not his kingdom will endure. And then there's John chapter 15 and verse 5, where where after Jesus identified himself as the vine, he said, if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. In other words, Jesus promised that you can be fruitful. Now that doesn't mean that you will be productive without, without expending any effort, nor does it mean that you can rest on your laurels. But it does mean that you are capable of doing great things in the kingdom of God because you're empowered by the vine. So the question I want you to ponder right now is do I expect the Lord to do big things in my life and in his kingdom? Do you believe that God is going to do big things in his kingdom and in your life personally? Do you believe that? Do you expect it? Do you look for it? Do you anticipate it? Do you believe that God can change that person who seems unchangeable? Do you believe that God can save that marriage that seems unsavable? Do you believe that God can bring back that soul that seems unrescuable? Do you believe that God can reach that community that seems unreachable? Do you believe that God can thwart that evil agenda that seems unthwartable? Do you believe that God can expand his church when it seems unexpandable? Do you believe that God can solve that dilemma that seems unsolvable? I'm afraid. I'm afraid that all too often we quit expecting God to do big things and we end up settling for him to do logical things. Do you know the difference? 
when we start settling for logical things, we're the ones, we're the ones putting limitations on what God can do and will do. When did we stop believing that God can do the big things? You know, even us ministers struggle with that from time to time. Many of you may not know this, but for the past two years, Jay, Ben, Mingu, and I have gone on a minister's retreat around this time so that we can start praying and planning and preparing for the upcoming year. We have a lot of ideas that we'll develop in that time and we'll share with the elders and get the yay or nay on and then move forward with it in the coming year. And when we gather for this retreat, there's something we've started doing. With every idea we have, we then wipe our whiteboard clean and we just write the word dream up there. And for the next 15 to 20 minutes, we just imagine the possibilities. We suspend our logical arguments against the idea and we just think about what it could be, what God could do with it. We do that so that we don't hamper our ideas or our thoughts or our beliefs based on what we think is logical. Because our God is because our God is bigger than our logic. There's a verse in Matthew chapter 17 and verse 20 that I have come to believe might be the most ignored verse, or at least a competitor for the most ignored verse in all the Bible by believers. Matthew chapter 17 and verse 20, it's a verse that you're probably familiar with. It says, If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. That's the only place in Scripture that I can think of where we're told nothing will be impossible for us. That nothing will be impossible language is consistently applied to God in Scripture. But Jesus indicates here in Matthew chapter 17 and verse 20 that when our faith is attached to the one for whom nothing is impossible, then nothing is impossible for us. See, the Christians at the beginning of the church, they watched Jesus leave this world. And despite his departure, they still lived with the expectation that he was going to do something big, and they patiently, prayerfully waited for it. Shouldn't we do the same? So ask yourself right now, are you living expectantly? Are you living full of faith expecting God to do big things in his kingdom and in your life. Because isn't that the objective of every believer? To have faith that can move mountains? You ever tried it? Ever tried to move a mountain with your faith? I got so bold one time, but I didn't use a mountain. I was in college, and, and I was... I was uh, 
I, I don't want to say I was at the strongest point in my faith ever, but I was at a pretty, pretty powerful place in my mind. I was at Bible camp that summer. I sat down on a log, and there was a little pebble, smaller than a dime, sitting in front of me. And I was thinking about this verse. You already think I'm crazy, but hear me out. I studied that pebble. I can still draw the outline of that pebble with the little edges on it and everything today. You think I'm crazy. I'm okay with that because I am. And I prayed, and I prayed, and I asked God, I said, Lord, I know you say faith can move mountains. I'm just trying a pebble. I'm just going to try a pebble. I closed my eyes for that prayer, and when I opened my eyes, the pebble was still there. But it didn't look the same anymore. It didn't have the same exact shape to it anymore. I'm not saying that God replaced my pebble. I'm not saying that God relocated my pebble. I'm not saying that God switched my pebble. What I am saying is that God may have changed the way I looked at my pebble. I believe faith can move mountains. But I also believe we quit believing that a long time ago. God can do big things in his kingdom and God can do big things in your life if you just let him. In the church in the first century, these first Christians believed that. They lived expecting that. Shouldn't we do the same? And now that you think I'm crazy, let's move on to the second thing. We can also imitate the first Christians by living blamelessly. One of the first challenges the church encountered was an accusation. They came out of that house miraculously communicating in foreign languages, and the whole episode was so unique and so unprecedented that the text says in verse 6, the crowd, was the crowd that observed it was bewildered. Verse 7 says they were amazed. Verse 7 also says the crowd was astonished. Verse 12 says they were amazed again, and then adds that they were perplexed. That's a lot of adjectives to, to describe the same reaction. The point is that the crowds found this extraordinary. And then in verse 13 of Acts chapter 2, we're told that some in the crowd that day mocked them. And they accused them, saying they are filled with new wine. In other words, they accused them of being drunk. This was so out of the ordinary, so strange, so magnificent that these people must be drunk. It was, the following, it was following this accusation that Peter quickly spoke up. And if you look at verse 15, 16, 17, and 18, this is what Peter says. He says, these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. What happens here is that Peter defended their unique communication ability with both practical and theological arguments. And that accusation was never brought up again. 
Here's what I think should be our big takeaway from this easily overlooked detail. Our big takeaway should be that Christians should live in such a way that accusations won't stick. You remember what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 and 12? He said, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter's instructing Christians to live such honorable and God-glorifying lives that no accusation against them will even be believable. In other words, he's instructing us to not operate with the how close to the line can I get before I sin mentality. And let's be honest. A lot of us sit right there in that mentality, consciously or subconsciously. How close to the line can I get before I sin? Far too often we operate with that. How revealing can these clothes be before it's a sin? How long can I look before it's a sin? How much can I consume before it's a sin? How much can I accumulate before it's a sin? How far can I go with my boyfriend or girlfriend before it's a sin? How little can I attend before it's a sin? We operate far too often with the how close can I get before I sin mentality when the truth is that we should operate with a totally different mentality. Our mentality should be at what point could what I'm doing be mistaken as a sin. That's a don't be a stumbling block mentality. That's a don't give the devil a foothold mentality. That's a mentality consistent with Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 3, which says, but among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity. Not even a hint of any kind of impurity. See, if you live your life with the goal for there to not even be a hint of any kind of impurity, then your life will be free of accusation. And shouldn't that be the goal? Shouldn't the mentality of, at what point could what I'm doing be mistaken as a sin? Shouldn't that be the question, rather than how far can I go before it's a sin? See, when you look at these first Christians on this opening day, what you have are these individuals who are able to deflect accusation because of the way in which they lived. Can your life do the same? Is your life one that can deflect any accusation? Because that's what it means to be blameless. And if you just do a word search in your New Testament of the word blameless, you quickly find out that that's an expectation the Lord has of you, to be blameless. 
So if we want to imitate the Christians at the beginning, we must live expectantly. We must live blamelessly. And we must live ready. Now usually when I talk about being ready in this pulpit, I'm talking about being ready for Christ's return. But in this instance, I'm talking about being ready to share the good news. You see, on the day of Pentecost, after these original members of the Lord's church had gained the crowd's attention with their miraculous communication skills, Peter seized the opportunity to start talking about Jesus. He was ready in the moment to communicate the gospel to whomever, whenever. He was ready. Why are so many of us not ready to share the good news? You could leave here today, go to a restaurant or a store, and you might have the opportunity to share the good news with somebody. Are you ready to do that? Because if you look at Acts chapter 2, they just walked outside of a house and had the opportunity to share the good news. I bet some of us have some neighbors who are still waiting to hear the good news. And what would the Acts 2 Christians think of us who don't walk outside ready to share it? I think one of the big reasons we are unprepared to share the good news is because we assume that we don't know enough to do it. In other words, we expect there to be questions that we can't answer or necessary information that we forget to impart. But I want you to break down Peter's sermon with me very quickly. And I want you to notice that there's really only four things Peter felt was essential for people to know. You see, when Jesus gave the Great Commission and he instructed us to go make disciples, he said, here's how you make disciples. You baptize them and you teach them all things I've commanded you. But notice which one came first, baptizing and then teach them everything. That implies that there are some things you need to know in order to receive salvation, and there are some things that you can learn after the fact. And if you look at Peter's sermon, that's exactly what he does. One of the things Peter indicates you need to know is you need to know that you're a sinner. Look at how this is communicated in Acts chapter 2, verse 22 and 23. After Peter used Scripture to explain the miraculous speaking in tongues, his next words are actually accusatory. Because to that audience, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and knowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He repeats that accusation down in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He's pointing his finger at them and saying, you have sinned. You see, at some point, people have to recognize that they're sinners because you know why? Only sinners need a Savior. So at some point, the recognition of sin has to be a part. Because repentance isn't necessary if there's no sin. So the first thing people need to know is they need to know they are sinners. 
that takes great grace to communicate, as well as great time. But people also need to know who Jesus is. The point of Peter's message to the Jews on the day of Pentecost was that Jesus was a man who became both Lord and Christ, to use his language in verse 22 and verse 36 of Acts 2. Why do those titles matter? Why is Peter emphasizing that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus is Christ? It's because those titles associate Jesus with God. Those titles indicate that he is more than a man. That he is, in fact, the anointed one, the savior of the world. So Peter was proclaiming in his message that Jesus was the son of God, that Jesus was the savior. That has to be something you communicate. The identity of the one who came to save us. Because people need to know who Jesus is, but not only that, people need to know what Jesus did. We've already noted that Peter referenced Jesus' crucifixion, but he spends a great deal of time talking about his resurrection as well. In verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He expounded then on the resurrection by quoting from one of David's psalms and providing the following commentary beginning in verse 29. He says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Peter made sure, as he preached the first gospel sermon, to tell what Jesus did, that he died and that he rose again. And isn't that what Paul would later in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 define the gospel as? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so as you communicate the gospel, people need to know what Jesus did in the terms of his death, burial, and resurrection. And finally, people need to know how to receive salvation. When asked by the audience on the day of Pentecost, what shall we do? Peter identified two things. In verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We often talk about the steps of salvation. And if you pay close enough attention, you know that there's more to the steps of salvation than just repentance and baptism. We know that you have to hear because Romans chapter 10 verse 17 says faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And we know that you have to believe as well as confess that belief because Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. We know there's more to it than just repentance and baptism, but I want you to notice that Peter only mentions repentance and baptism because when the crowd asked, what shall we do, they had already heard and they had already believed. It's Acts chapter 2 and verse 37 that says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. It's Acts chapter 2 and verse 41 that refers to them as having received Peter's word. 
the implication of those statements is that not only had they already heard what Peter said, but they had accepted it as truth. They had accepted it in a way that was evident to Peter, which means they had in some capacity confessed their belief. So at this point, when Peter instructed them to repent and be baptized, he's simply identifying the things they had left to do in order to receive salvation. See, this morning, that might be where we're at. There are some out in this audience today that have some things left to do to receive salvation. Hopefully, hopefully you've already heard. You've already heard the message of the gospel that Jesus Christ died for you to take away your sins, that he rose from the grave. Maybe you believe that, but you haven't taken the necessary steps of confessing your belief, of repenting of your sins, of being immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. Maybe today that's where you're at. And just as Peter invited this audience to put on Christ in baptism, we invite you to do the same today so that you too may receive the forgiveness of your sins and so that you too may be added to the church. But it may be that you're here today, having already made those decisions. But you're not quite imitating the church as we see it in Acts chapter 2. Maybe you don't have that faith that God will do big things, and you need to seek it out. And you need the help of this congregation praying for you and encouraging you to think and believe that God can do big things in your life and in his kingdom right now. Maybe you're not living blamelessly, and there is a life that you live that has accusations available on it, and you want to clean that slate. And you want to admit that you've done wrong, and you want to start over. Maybe. Maybe you haven't been an ambassador for God like you should and you haven't been doing your part to share the good news maybe you haven't made yourself ready so that whenever the opportunity presents itself you can tell somebody about Christ and you recognize that your failure to be ready has to change If any of those is your case today, then we offer the same invitation that Peter offered in Acts chapter 2. The invitation to come to Christ. And if you want to take that invitation, then we invite you to come up here to the front of this auditorium while together we stand and sing.